The following podcast is from Arlington Countryside Church. If you want to learn more about us, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org. My name is Chris Majeski. I'm the pastor of youth and children here at ACC, and it's my privilege to speak to you from God's Word this morning, share with you as we continue on in our series through the book of Titus called God Advice. Um, I want to admit, though, first off the bat, that uh, I've got a little bit of an Olympic hangover. Um, been staying up late watching the Olympics. Anybody with me on that? You've been staying up late watching the Olympics? I love it. I do this every time the Olympics are on. I don't even like, well, I don't follow these sports most of the time, but then the Olympics are on. I'm like, these are my favorite things. I love this. Let's watch this, right? And I'm all about it. Uh, quick story about that. I was watching uh, downhill skiing, some women's downhill skiing events the other night, and uh, and and one of the athletes missed a gate and and went off the course. And I was like, oh come on, you got to catch that gate, you got to get that turn. And my wife was there on the couch, and she said, you realize she's going like 70 miles an hour. It's kind of hard, right? <laughs> and uh, and then and we we're watching speed skating another night, and and a guy started slowing down on the last lap, and the guy passed him. I was like, come on, dude, kick it up a notch, let's go. And 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 my wife again said, you realize he's going like 36 miles an hour, and he's exhausted himself, right? And, and, and so, so yeah, so, I mean, I get into it, right? I'm excited about it. I have a friend who, who said, uh, I thought this was hilarious. He said, I think all Olympic sports should have an average human competing just for reference, right? Just, just to see what, what most of us would do out there, right? So, uh, but anyway, I love the Olympics. I uh, get into it. I've stayed up way too late, and I'm looking forward to getting some good sleep the next week here as it's over. I bring that up because uh, here, here's a connecting point. I wonder, what is the guiding principle for your life? In other words, what's the underlying philosophy by which you make decisions? An Olympic athlete sure has one. Their, their life, even if it's just for a short period of time, is all about getting to that moment where they can be on that stage and, 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 and receive that medal, right? That they can achieve that dream that they've been working so hard for. And so their training and their nutrition and their, their travel, all this stuff is all geared towards this. Their underlying philosophy is that they have, they have this gift that they are going to use in this, in this sport, and they're going to they're gonna achieve greatness. Well, what about you? What's the guiding principle for your life? What's the underlying philosophy by which you make decisions? And here's part two of that question. If you were to objectively observe your actions, so if you could just step outside of your body and watch yourself do life for a little while, and just observe your actions, would you come to the same conclusion about that principle? If you were objectively observing your actions, would you say, yes, that principle is the guiding principle for my life? Or would you come to a different conclusion? And I don't say that to, to bring up guilt or think, hey, you know, we all, got, we all have work to do, right? We all have to close that gap between our actions and our, and our words and that kind of thing, right? We're all in process on that. But here's the reason I bring that up. Our actions tell a story. They communicate a message to those around us. They, they send a message to the world around us. And that's, in essence, what Paul is talking about in our passage here this morning. As we look at Titus chapter 2, Paul is essentially saying, your actions are sending a message to the world around you. And in fact, that's the language he starts off with here in Titus chapter 2. I'd like to pray, and then we're going to read our passage together. Lord, I pray that you would be with us now. Um, we have been here in your presence uh, as we have gathered as a community to worship you. And with that same attitude of worship, now we look to your word to teach us. We invite you in now, Lord, to, to, into our hearts that you would help us to understand your word, that we would leave here changed people because we've encountered you. 
We invite you to teach us now. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's go ahead and read Titus 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Teach the older men to exercise self-control, to be worthy of respect, and to live wisely. They must have sound faith and be filled with love and patience. Similarly, teach the older women to live in a way that honors God. They must not slander others or be heavy drinkers. Instead, they should teach others what is good. These older women must train the younger women to love their husbands and their children, to live wisely and be pure, to work in their homes, to do good, and to be submissive to their husbands. Then they will not bring shame on the word of God. In the same way, encourage the younger men to live wisely. And you yourself must be an example to them by doing good works of every kind. Let everything you do reflect the integrity and seriousness of your teaching. Teach the truth so that your teaching can't be criticized. Then those who oppose us will be ashamed and have nothing bad to say about us. Slaves must always obey their masters and do their best to please them. They must not talk back or steal, but must show themselves to be entirely trustworthy and good. Then they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive in every way. So we see here in this passage that Paul is giving Titus some instruction for different people groups, right? Some different groups, and we're going to walk through that in a second. But let us look back here at the verse 1. As for you, Titus, promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching. Paul has just been just talking about how Titus should handle these false teachers, so we talked about, that's what Dave talked about last week. In, in end of chapter one, there was these teach, these false teachers that were kind of creating a mess in this, in the church in Crete, and, and, and Paul is telling Titus how he should handle that. And now, he's shifting gears to now, Titus, you as a good teacher, as a true teacher, here's what you need to be about, and here's some things that you need to teach about. So the connecting thought here for these, these ideas is Titus 1.16. Let's look back at how he describes these false teachers. Such people claim they know God. But they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Some pretty harsh words. Some pretty harsh words. It's pretty serious business what they were involved with and the, and the deception that was going on, the false teaching that was going on, right? But notice what he says. They, deny, they claim to know God, but they deny him by the way they live their lives. Paul is bringing out this concept that our, our words need and our actions should be in line that our actions actually tell a story actually communicate something their words they say they know god but their actions actually say that they don't and our passage here paul is saying to titus promote the kind of living that reflects wholesome teaching in other words titus you're different from those guys and your teaching should be different as well and the results of your teaching should be different as well and so titus your teaching and your conduct and the conduct of those in the church in crete should be different. Paul then moves on to give instructions about how the Cretans should live. And he describes five, five groups. Uh, there's older men, older women, young women, young men, and slaves. Uh, and these are, uh, you know, these are, he, he gives instructions to each of these groups and, and he gives kind of like instructions that would be normal uh, trouble areas for these groups. Kind of, kind of focusing in on some, some hot button issue kind of things for them. Uh, he could have given them a whole lot more instructions, but he kind of focuses it based on some trouble areas. Uh, and let's not miss that he's dealing with issues that arose from the false teachers. When we look, we look back at Titus 1, verse 11, it says that, that these false teachers are turning whole families away from the truth. 
that part of what they were teaching was disrupting the, the family unit, the household relationships. And that's the relationships he's talking about here. Older men and, and older women, younger women, younger men and slaves. These are all household relationships, right? The, the dynamic of the home. And, and some of these teachings were disrupting that and disrupting the community. And so it's likely that what he's doing here is setting these things straight. He's saying the false teachers made this mess. Let's get back on track. And these are how God's, God says that we should be living. These things are the things that we should be about. So with our message this morning, rather than dig into each group and the instructions he gives them, as if to say, okay, older men, pay attention. These are the instructions. Older women, let's focus here. Instead of going into each people group like that, what I want to do is I want to take a step back and kind of look at what is, what's the reason for all of this, the foundation for these instructions to be given. What are the principles behind all of this? The reason behind the instruction. And actually, Paul tells us that reason behind it. And he, he, he gives it to us in, in three different places here. In, in uh, Titus 2, verse 5, it says uh, that, that uh, we should be careful not to let our actions bring shame on the word of God. And so there's, a, there's, a, there's an indication here of how our actions might impact how others view the word of God and view the gospel. In verse 8, he talks about how uh, Titus should set this example and, 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 and teach truth and all that. And, and, and the, the perspective, it's impacting the perspective of those outside the church. So that they'll see what you're teaching and they'll, they'll, re, they'll realize they have no basis for their opposition to you and their slander of you. So, so it's, it's dealing with the perspective of those outside the church. And then in verse 10, probably the most pronounced example of this, verse 10 talks about how we make the gospel attractive to those outside of the church. I want to suggest to you that Paul's instructions for the believers in Crete are all about advancing the gospel message. These instructions that he gives to each of these groups, it's all about helping people know Jesus. It's all about advancing the gospel. Instructions given, they're outward demonstrations of inward stuff that's happened. And it's it's the outward demonstration of a life that's been radically impacted by the gospel. So I've titled this sermon, A Gospel Life. I want to look at four things that happen when we encounter God, when we are impacted by the gospel, and how it, how it plays out in our lives. And we're, as we go through this, we'll see these instructions and how some of these, uh, some of these connect with these ideas. So the first one is that a Christ follower is changed by the gospel. Someone who's encountered God is changed by the gospel. It's not about adhering. Christianity is not about adhering to a set of rules or moral code or conduct. It's not about these outward things with no real internal change. It's about real change at the core of our being that causes us to live like Jesus. See, there's, there's a danger that we can have in just taking these, these ten verses out of Titus. If we just took these verses, we didn't look before or after or read it in context of the entire Bible, we could come up with some pretty pretty bogus ideas, some pretty crazy ideas. We would miss, first off, if we did that, we would miss the idea of these false teachers and, and why Titus is being given these instructions right now. We would miss the idea of these family dynamics that have been messed up by this false teaching. Hence the reason for giving instructions about the household relationships. We would also, could easily come to the conclusion that Christianity is about the good works that I do, not about the work that Jesus did on my behalf on the cross. We might come to the conclusion that Christianity is a code of moral conduct that we, that we follow instead of a, great, a religion based on the grace through faith that we trust in what Jesus has done for us. 
But yet there is a place for these good deeds, these works, these instructions that he's talking about, these good things that we should do in life and the relationships here that he's talking about, how they should be impacted. There's a place for that. A true Christ follower does good deeds out of a heart that is submitted to God. Because this change has happened and our hearts are submitted to God, then this action comes out. We look like Jesus in the way we interact with people. And we can see that as we look closely at some of the instructions that he gives. He gives some instruction here to have, a, have sound faith, to be filled with love and patience. Those aren't rules and regulations. Those are deeper. Those aren't surface level. That's deep-rooted stuff. Have you ever tried to just be patient and loving when you didn't really feel like it? <laughs> You're not normally very good at that. And it's short-lived even if you, are very, even if you can pull it off. It's got to be a deep-rooted internal change that happens in order for that to come out as a life, life, a lifestyle. There are good deeds that come out of a, these are the good deeds that come out of a heart that's been changed. And, and skipping ahead here, stealing a little bit of Dave's thunder from Titus 3, is later on in the series, Titus 3 verse 5, we see this in this very book, this same idea. He saved us not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. So Paul, in, in, in this book here, this very book, he talks about this idea of an internal change that's happened. It's not based on the good things we've done, but he's washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. If, it's not because of the righteous, if our salvation is not because of the righteous things that we've done, then it would stand to reason that the way we continue our relationship with God is not because of the right, righteous things we've done. It's not the way we're saved, and it's not the way that we continue on in our relationship. Now, those things do happen, but they happen as a result of what's happened, not because of, not, not, the, not the, the cause of what's happened. Good deeds are there in our lives. They should be evident in the Christian's life. But they're the result of salvation, not the reason for salvation. I'll say that again. Good deeds are the result of salvation, not the reason for salvation. So Titus talks here about how we've been washed, our sins have been washed away and God's given us a new birth and a new life. He saved us by grace. This idea of being born again. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that we are a new creation. That's that internal change that's happened. That then we can live out these things that he calls us to and live like Jesus in this world. It's so clear that we have to, we, we have to be clear on that. We have to get that down because Christians are always in danger of stepping into moralism and legalism. Meaning that we shift our trust from Jesus and what he did on the cross to our own good works. Now, and, and we would never consciously do that. Like, we're, we're smart enough to do that. But there's subtle ways that that creeps back in to our lives if we're not careful. That we begin to believe that God is pleased with me because I did these things. And God is not pleased with me because I didn't do these things. It's not based on our own merit. It's based on what he has done for us. Ephesians 2, 9 and 10. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we have done. So none of us can boast about it. For we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus. So we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Do you catch the order there in that last part of that verse? He has created us anew so that we can do the good works he planned for us long ago. It's by that internal change, by that new creation that he has made us, he's made us a new creation, that then we can then do the good deeds he's, he's, he's planned for us, that he's created us for. It's not a reward for the good things we've done. This was so key for me in high school. If you know my story, I came to Christ through my high school youth ministry. 
And, and I, I, up until that point, had believed I'm a, basically a good person. At the end of the day, if my good outweighs the bad, then, then God will forgive me and let me into heaven. And I came to a realization through my high school youth ministry that that wasn't the way it works and that I needed a Savior. And yet, I was still this very good kid. I had done a lot of good stuff. I was getting noticed in school for that. Teachers said, oh, he's a great student. He's doing well. I was a good friend, all that kind of stuff. I was a good boy, right? And so when I became a Christian, when I became a Christ follower, my actions didn't look very different. I was still doing a lot of those same things. My actions were pretty much the same because I was a good kid already to begin with, basically a good kid, right? And so when I came to the realization in high school that I needed a savior, there was an internal change that happened in me, but yet I still kind of hung on to this idea that God must have saved me because I've done some good stuff or because I will do good things in the future, right? It's based on my own merit. I hung on to this idea that I must have offered God something or will offer God something in the future, that that's why he would would want me on his team, right? And I remember the moment where that broke through, this this broke through, uh, this idea that God saved me not from anything I've ever done, when that broke through. And it was my senior year of high school. I don't remember the context, what was going on, but I was thinking over a conversation I had just had with a friend. And I was driving down the stretch of road uh, that, I, that I, I went to and from work all the time. And I was on this stretch of road. I could take you back to the exact same place. And I remember having this aha moment that was like, no, that's not why I saved you. Like God spoke into my life and said, that's not why I saved you. I didn't save you because of anything you've done. And it's not because of anything you will do in the future. I saved you because I loved you. I saved you because I love you. Not loved, love you. Blew me away. And I remember thinking, are you sure? Because that's not the way I understand love. The way I understand love is people love me because I do things for them. Or I love people because, it, because they're nice to me, right? There's an exchange that happens here. But when I came face to face with the fact that God loved me unconditionally, without strings attached, it blew my mind. It blew my mind. That's the way God loves us. It's the way God loves you. He saved you not because of anything you've done or will do, but because he loves you. And when you can soak that in and believe that at a core level, it transforms your life. Because that's what we all want. That's what we've all been longing for our entire lives, is somebody to love us unconditionally. Someone to love us without any strings attached. And that's the way that God loves us. And when we encounter that, that love seals up our brokenness and transforms us. So the second point here is that a Christ follower models the gospel. They help others to see the gospel. This idea of modeling the gospel comes from the kind of teaching that Paul talks about here. It's not just teaching with words, it's teaching with our lives, with our actions. He says to set an example, right? That's the kind of teaching he's talking about here, is a life that points to the gospel, a life that models the gospel. And that's communicated throughout. To each group, there's this sense that people are watching you. So live this way. Live in a way that, that, that points to the gospel, that honors God. People are watching you. Your actions send a message. And so he's, he says them to set an example for those in the church. And really, that's the exact language that he says to Titus. That you, Titus, as you, uh, set, you should set an example for the younger men in the church. And, and we see this in the way that he's describing the relationship of older women teaching younger women. Um, it, they're to set an example. They're to, to, to you know, show them by their lifestyle, that kind of thing. 
We see it with Titus teaching the younger men. And we also see it with Paul playing this role with Titus. As Paul from a distance has calling on his life experience with Titus and his relationship with him and mentoring him from afar. And that's really a great word for what we're talking about here is mentoring. That we're all called to be mentors in the body of Christ. And that might not mean a formal mentoring, but our life should be an example to those around us. Help others to see Jesus through our actions. 1 Timothy 4.12 says, Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young, but set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. So this is Paul writing to the young pastor Timothy, and so that young part, that's because it's specifically written to Timothy, but this applies to all of us beyond just that, and so whether you're young or old or whatever age you are, but set an exam- take these words to heart, set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. That the idea of passing on the faith should be through our words and our actions. And perhaps you can think of someone in your life who's played this role for you. Somebody who's been an example of Jesus to you. Maybe they were a formal mentor. Maybe it was an informal way. Maybe it's somebody who's mentored you from afar. Maybe they're not even aware of that. But somebody who you've looked to as an example of what it is to be a Christian. Or you've learned from their example. My youth pastor did this for me. I told you I came to Christ through my high school ministry. I crossed the line of faith as a, as a, a, a freshman in high school. And, and my youth pastor spent uh, my junior and senior year with me and a couple other guys. We met almost every Sunday. And he mentored us. He discipled us. Helped us to learn what it is to be a Christian, to be a Christ follower. And I learned, we went through books and we did some verse memory and we did all, a lot of different kinds of things. But sometimes we just got together and played foosball and, and drank Mountain Dew and that kind of thing, right? Like, like we did life together, we hung out. And I watched him as he interacted with me, as he interacted with the other guys in our group and other students in our ministry. I watched him as he interacted with his wife and with his kids. And I learned a lot. I learned a lot about what it is to follow Jesus as I watched this man I knew. Act this out. Live this out. I learned as I watched him. He set an example for me and taught me a lot about following Jesus. And so I think it's so significant that Paul puts this out here, that we should set an example. Because we need that. Think about your own life more as caught than taught often, right? People can give you information, and if you're not ready for that information, it goes in one ear and out the other. But you see something in action and it, it, it becomes more real, more alive. There's things that we can learn by watching and doing. But I think it's also important that he gives these instructions to the, the, about the household relationships. Because so much of faith is learned at home. And we often think that church is the place where that happens and it is a big part of it. It's a big part of the, the Christian growth and the community and that aspect of it. But the research continues to show that, that home is, is the biggest influencer of faith. That the home life that we come from. Our parents are the primary faith influencers in our lives. The things that we learn and believe about God, we've picked up by watching people in action. And I say that for you that in here that have kids, I hope that's not producing guilt. There's so much guilt around parenting and what we think we should be doing and we're not doing and that kind of thing. But I hope that that encourages you. And those of you who are, who are without kids or, or, or you're, in, you're in the church, I hope that that encourages, encourages you still as you model Christ to others even in this community. I hope it encourages you because I hope you can see that you're probably doing better than you think you are. 
You're critiquing yourself based on all of the things that you know and somebody's seeing your example and they're picking up on subtle things that you're saying and doing that you might never have even realized. You might be a better example than you think you are. And I hope that you can find encouragement in the fact that you don't always have to have the right words, but your life can be that story and that testament. The third point is that a Christ follower is motivated by the gospel. The motivation for living out these instructions that Paul is giving is the gospel. Because we love God, we do what God says. We obey God out of love. And that's this, this idea. The motivation for what we're doing here is the gospel. 2 Corinthians five fourteen and 15. Either way, Christ's love controls us. Since we believe that Christ died for all, we also believe that we have all died to our old life. We died for everyone so that those who receive his new life will no longer live for themselves. Instead, they will live for Christ who died and was raised for them. The first part of that verse, Christ's love controls us. The NIV translates that compels us. It could also be translated drives us. It's this motivating factor. Christ's love is the motivating factor. It's what pushes us out into the world to live for him. And in verse 15, he talks about dying to ourselves and live for Christ and, and instead living for Christ. Galatians, in Galatians, Paul says that, that he's died with Christ and he doesn't live, the life that he lives in this body now is all about Jesus. It's about living by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. It's a life that's, that's given entirely to him. So the motivation behind living the Christian life is, all, is love for Christ, is love for Jesus. The motivation behind it is the love for Jesus. It's as simple as that. But I want to suggest that there's also this sense of wanting to glorify God. Wanting to give honor to God. When we recognize God and his role in our lives, it should draw us into praising him and worshiping him. And wanting others to do the same. So when Paul gives the instruction to submit... He's not saying the other person is better than you or more important than you and that's why you should submit. That's how we often translate that word. In, I mean, in our minds, that's how we often have the context of that word. But the idea he's saying here is you should submit because it honors God and it follows his example. God, God himself submitted. Jesus submitted himself to death on the cross on our behalf. And so when we submit in appropriate situations and we submit to those that, we, that, that are in authority over us, we're, doing like, we're being like Jesus. We're following his example. And that honors God. And when Paul says, gives the instruction here to live wisely, that's not for our own personal gain. As if, if you do these things, you're going to end up with this great result in your life. It's not for our own gain or our own stature or that kind of thing. It's because God is wise. And we honor him when we look to him for wisdom and then we live it out. That's honoring to God. That's glorifying to God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. In a sense, an underlying principle for our lives, right? To bring glory to God and enjoy him forever. So Christ's follower is motivated to live for Christ out of love for him and out of a desire to glorify God. And the fourth one here is that a Christ follower shines the gospel. Puts it on display, helps others to see it, makes it attractive, as he says in verse 10. The gospel is the story of God's grace. 
of God's undeserved, unearned love for us. That love led him to fix our sin problem by offering his son for us on the cross, by offering Jesus Christ as payment for our sin. He fixed our sin problem, his love, based on his love for us, his grace for us. It's a story of God's grace. So as Christ followers, we are to embody God's grace to this world. We are to live it out in our relationships. And this is all over the instructions that Paul gives here. It's not you need to do these things because this person treated you this way. It's you need to do these things, period. No matter what anybody else does, because these are what's right, and this is the way that you express love and grace to those around you. And we see that most notably with the slave and master relationship. There's actually some some problems that arose in the early church in the slave-master relationship. See, Christianity, when it came on the scene here, it, it helped, it leveled the playing field here. So all these people, these slaves, could go to worship and they were equal on equal footing with their masters in worship. Women experienced equal footing before God as men did. This was, this was revolutionary, these things, and it caused a lot of issues to come up. And so slaves would worship alongside their master on, on, at, their, at their church service and then they'd go back to their, to their work and they would be subjected to this person. And so there was conflicts that came up. There were issues that arose from that. And so Paul, in, in, in explaining this, this idea of, of showing grace in that, he says to the slaves, you should please your master. You should be the, strive to be the best person at your, best slave that you could possibly be. Do the best job at your job so that it draws your master in. So that they're intrigued by what you're doing and they're, they're drawn in and, and they're curious about why you live this way and why you do what you do. Now, to go down, we could go down a side road and talk about slavery and if this was appropriate. And let me just, just say, Christianity was a driving force in helping to overturn slavery. William Wilberforce, there's all sorts of other stuff we could talk about, but there was a huge way of overturning Christianity. So Paul's not saying slavery is okay. He's saying this is the situation you find yourself in. Do your best to be the best possible person you could in this situation and make the gospel attractive. That's what he says in verse 10. Make the gospel attractive. And so he talked about setting an example already to those in the church. And what he's talking about here is that your life should be an example to those outside of the church. He's talking about lifestyle evangelism. Telling the message of the gospel with your life and your actions to those around you. Matthew five fifteen and 16 talks about this. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way let your good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Now, it's not let your good deeds shine out so everybody thinks you're awesome and they look at you and praise you. It's let your good deeds shine out so that they praise God, that they draw their attention there and they see how awesome and how great our God is. And so it's not you do these things for attention. It's you do these things because you know it's right and it honors God. And the result will be that it shines the gospel out to a world that needs it. I was talking to a friend earlier this week who shared a story of how he, he did this. He shined the gospel. He shined God's grace out in a relationship that he has. So talk, he told me about a neighbor that he's been at odds with. And the neighbor has kind of closed him off and not talked to him, ignored him for a little while. And, and, and yet, yet this, this friend was out shoveling his driveway and shoveled his neighbor's driveway too. That wasn't, that wasn't an act that was deserved, it was earned. Uh, he, it wasn't I shoveled your driveway because you've been nice to me and you've been, you know, we're on good terms. It was, I'm going to express love and grace to you. Even though you've, you've, you've shut me out and don't want to talk to me, I'm going to shovel your driveway as an act of love and an act of grace. 
I want to suggest to you that one of the major ways that we can shine the gospel in our life, in the world around us, are unexpected acts of service. Unexpected acts of love and kindness to those around us can go a long way. So what we're talking about here, this whole idea, it's a perspective shift. It's shifting our perspective from ourselves and our own agenda to God and his agenda. To living our lives fully for him. And that starts first with being changed by the gospel. It involves modeling it to those around us through sharing life, this idea of mentoring kind of deal. It involves being motivated by the love of Christ and for the glory of God. We live in a way that displays the love of Christ and the glory of God, that motivates us to do this. Shining the good, and, and involves shining the good news of Jesus to a world that desperately needs the hope of the gospel. This is a perspective shift. It's a life, this is the life that we're called to. This is a gospel life. And as we wrap up, I want to share with you the words of 2 Corinthians 4, 16-18, as I hope there'll be an encouragement to you as you seek to go out and live this kind of life. That is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day, for our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. May we be a people who live with an eternal perspective, and may God use us, his masterpieces, to advance the gospel in our world. Thank you for listening. If you want to know more about Arlington Countryside Church, please visit us on the web at acchurch.org.